Father God, what a, uh, just an incredible reminder that song is, Lord, uh, that you are a God who is just always faithful to us. And Father, sometimes it's hard to see that in the midst of, of difficult seasons and circumstances, Lord, but as we look back, we're always able to see that you were there, that you were with us, that you were leading us and guide us, guiding us every step of the way. And Father, I just pray, God, that you would teach us what it looks like and, and how to remember your faithfulness, even as we're going through the difficult seasons, God. That we would see that you are there and with us and that you are, uh, you are leading us and you are guiding us, Father. And that we would never, ever forget just the love that you have poured out on us. And God, we know that one sign of your faithfulness, one sign of your presence with us is that you have given us your word as an opportunity to, to learn more about you, God, to learn more about ourselves and who you have created us to be, and to learn more about the way that you want us to live, which is ultimately a way that is pleasing to you, and I believe also best for us. And so God, as we open up your word and turn our attention to it, Lord, we pray that you would say today what you once said through me, God, that I would be nothing more than your microphone, nothing more than your mouthpiece to get the message that you want to get across, Father, and that we would leave today different because not of what I said, because of what you've said. And so we give this time over to you, and we ask that you would be pleased in and through it. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. And as you grab a seat, if you could also take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 7. No, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is where we are today. My name is Chris Ward. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, we are continuing this week the series that we started a few weeks ago, uh, which is all about problems that we face in the Christian life and uh, uh, solutions that Jesus ultimately gives to those problems. And today, we get the opportunity to look at the problem of loneliness, the problem of loneliness and isolation. One of the things that we know that some of you struggle with in our church because you've expressed it to us is you feel at times a sense of loneliness and isolation, maybe a sense of, of, of not really fitting in. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. And this problem of loneliness that we're looking at today, this problem is unique some, from some of the other problems that we are covering in this series in that, this is the only problem actually we're covering in the series that did not come about as a result of sin. Uh, every other problem that we have co are covering in this series are problems that have come about because of the way that sin has messed up God's world. So anxiety, for example, anxiety, which we talked about last week. We talked about how anxiety has come about because of the way that, among other things, the way that sin has corrupted the mind. And we are now prone to believe lies. Sickness, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Sickness has also come about as a result of sin. Sickness was not a part of God's original plan for this world. But when mankind sinned, death was brought into this world as a punishment for that sin. And along with that came sickness. So all the other problems that we are covering in this series, they've all come about because of the way that sin has messed up the world that God has created. Loneliness is different. And what makes loneliness different is, believe it or not, loneliness actually existed even before sin. Loneliness and isolation existed even before sin. That's what we learn from the book of Genesis. That's what we learn from the Garden of Eden. When after God created Adam, the first human being, even though Adam was surrounded by all of the animals that God had created, even though Adam had what seemed to be an unobstructed, un, uh, unimpeded relationship with God, God still looked at Adam in the Garden of Eden, and God said to Adam, Adam, you're alone, and that's not good. That's what we learn in Genesis 2.18, when God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. 
It is not good for the man to be alone. And in fact, some of you may know it's the loneliness of Adam. It's the isolation of Adam. That's the first thing in all of God's creation that he declared to be not good. And it was because of the loneliness of Adam. That's why God created woman. And so uh, loneliness has not come about as a result of sin. And I think that that challenges us a little bit. I think that challenges even some of what we, we hear sometimes in church. Uh, when people found out that I was talking on loneliness today, uh, I heard from more than one person, oh, you're talking on loneliness. Well, obviously, then you're going to talk about how we're never really lonely in the Christian life because God is always with us. And I thought it was interesting that people go straight to, well, we're never lonely because we always have God with us. And I, I think what that expresses is I think that expresses this belief maybe that we Christians have sometimes that in some ways the goal of the Christian life is to develop such a relationship with God that, that we don't need other people anymore. To become so spiritual in our relationship with God that just God and us, that's, that's all we need. You think of those monks, right, who travel to monasteries to live those isolated lives. The idea is to get as close to God as possible. And I think some people think that's the goal. That we would become so spiritual, so close in our relationship with God that we would no longer need other people. Well, listen, if that is the goal that you have in the Christian life, you are going to be very frustrated. Because in the Garden of Eden, it was just Adam and God. It was just the two of them, or the four of them, if you include the Trinity. It was just Adam and God. And even still, God said to Adam, he said, Adam, you're alone, and you need someone. And what we learn from that is from the very beginning of our existence, from the very beginning of our creation, we were created to exist in community with other people. We were created to exist in relationship with other people. And that's why, although we do have God always with us in the Christian life, that's why God still saw fit to give us the church. Because this right here, this is the community that God wants us to be in relationship with. These are the people that God wants us to go through this Christian life with. So loneliness has not come about a result of sin. Loneliness existed even before sin. But that is not to say that sin hasn't exacerbated the problem of loneliness, because absolutely it has. Because what sin has done is sin has made relationships difficult. Sin has made relationships hard. Sin has gotten in the way of the authentic community that God wants us to exist in. And that is really what I feel compelled to talk about today. Uh, as we said in the series several times, this series is not a series on problems. Ultimately, it's a series on solutions. It's a series on the solutions that Jesus brings to the problems that we face in this life. And as you look through the four biographies we have of Jesus, as you look through the four Gospels, you will see that although Jesus doesn't really talk about loneliness per se, what Jesus does talk a lot about is he talks a lot about community. One of the things that Jesus came to do, I think, is to give us a picture of what true, authentic Christian community looked like. And in order to talk about community, one of the things that Jesus would do on a couple of different occasions is he would talk about the attitudes and the behaviors that get in the way of authentic Christian community. The attitudes and behaviors that we can adopt that can make relationships difficult in this life. And there are probably few attitudes that are more dangerous than the one that we're going to look at today, which is the attitude of judgmentalism. It's the attitude of criticism. It's the attitude of deciding and declaring how we feel about a person even before we really get to know them. And this is the attitude that Jesus comes out against in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7 when he says quite simply there, he says, Do not judge 
or you too will be judged. Do not judge or you too will be judged. And this statement right here, this is probably one of Jesus' most famous sayings. In fact, I would argue this is probably one of the, I don't know, maybe top 50 most famous verses in the entire Bible. But as is often the case with the really familiar verses, this one is often misunderstood. In fact, what I find interesting about this verse is that this verse is more likely to be found on the lips of a non-Christian than it is to be found on the lips of a Christian. Uh, This verse is almost used as a weapon against us Christians, that whenever we feel compelled to to say that we don't agree with a decision that someone is making, or we don't agree with a lifestyle choice that someone is making, we're always in danger of having thrown at us, hey, don't judge or you too will be judged. Who are you to judge me? And the way that this verse is often used by people is to suggest that in the Christian life, we Christians can never point out the wrong that someone else is doing. We can never say that what we, we believe that what someone else is doing is wrong or inappropriate or something like that. But we have to understand that's not at all what this verse is saying. In fact, I will show you a little bit later on in this passage where Jesus absolutely gives us the right to say that other people are doing something wrong. He absolutely gives us the right to, to say that we don't agree, that we think that what someone is doing is a sin, and I'll point that out a little bit later. So this verse is not saying that we can never point out the wrong in someone else's life. So if that's not what it's saying, what is Jesus warning against here? Well, the answer is found in this Greek word that is translated judge in this passage. This Greek word translated judge is a word that can have a variety of different meanings, a lot of different shades and nuances and meanings. And one of the meanings that this word can have, and it's obvious that this is the meaning that Jesus has here, is this Greek word translated judge can mean to be judgmental in the sense of being overly critical. It can mean to be judgmental in the sense of being overly critical. In fact, the Greek word translated judge here is the Greek word krino, K-R-I-N-O. And the reason I tell you that is because it's from the Greek word translated judge here, krino, that we get our English word critic or criticism. And indeed, there's one kind of older paraphrased translation of the Bible out there that actually translates this verse, stop being critical. Stop being critical. And that is what Jesus is really warning against here. What he's warning against is, 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 is this judgmental, overly critical sort of attitude that we can adopt towards other people. In fact, the best English word that we have to describe what Jesus is talking about here is an English word that we don't use all that much, but it gets it spot on. And that is the English word censorious. Have you heard of that word before, censorious? Great SAT word, a little SAT lesson for you here today. What does the word censorious mean? Well, the English word censorious means this. Webster's defines it as being severely critical of others. Being severely critical of others. And that's what Jesus is warning against here. Developing this censorious sort of attitude. When I think of the word, English word censorious, there is an image that comes to my mind. It's an image from nature. And it's an image of what monkeys sometimes do when they come together. In fact, let's go ahead. Let's put that picture on the screen. Do you know what these two monkeys are doing? They're grooming each other, right? They're cleaning each other. So sometimes when monkeys come together, what they like to do is they like to comb through each other's fur. And they're looking for ticks. And they're looking for lice. And so they'll comb through each other's fur, and they'll, whenever they find a tick or a lice, they'll begin eating, okay? That's what, that's what monkeys like to do. That's what this is a picture of right here. But you know what this picture is also a picture of? This is a picture of censorious people, okay? Because this is what censorious people love to do. Whenever they meet someone else, immediately what they do is they begin combing through that person. 
and they're looking for the ticks. They're looking for the lice. They're looking for the sins. They're looking for the faults. They're looking for whatever they can to criticize about the other person. In fact, yesterday I sat down and I wrote, wrote down three things that censorious people love to do. First of all, censorious people love to find the wrong in people before they find the right. They love to point out your tics before they ever tell you how beautiful your fur is, okay? They love to find the wrong before the right. The second thing they love to do is they decide that they won't like someone even before they get to know them. Based on how you dress, based on how you talk, based on how you said hi to them, based on something they heard from someone else, they, they, they write people off. They decide even before they get to know someone that they won't like them. And then thirdly, censorious people love to put other people down in order to lift themselves up. They'd love to put other people down in order to lift themselves up. And that's where censoriousness really comes from. It comes from an insecurity. All of us have this desire deep within us to feel better about ourselves. And the way that overly critical do that people do that is they love to put other people down in order to feel better about themselves. Censorious people are ones who say things like, Did you see the way she's dressed at church? I can't believe that. I would never dress that way. Or did you see the, the new woman that he has on his arms? That, that, that woman is half his age. I, honey, aren't you glad? I would never, ever do anything like that. Did you see the, the, the house that they live in? Did you see the, the car that they drive? I just don't see how you can be a Christian and live in that sort of house and drive that sort of car. Did you see how they responded to their kids? I would never let my kids get away with what they let their kids get away with. My favorite thing is when censorious people accuse others of being too critical and too negative, which they do sometimes too, right? That's what censorious people do. And all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, all, all of us, we, we know censorious people, don't we? Don't look at the person sitting next to you, but we know those type of people. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'd also admit that we've been those type of people before too. We've been those type of people before too, all of us have a tendency at times to find the wrong before we ever find the right. We all have the tendency at times to, to write people off, to, 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 to determine that we don't like someone even before we get to know them. And all of us have probably put other people down as a way to feel better about ourselves. I know I have. In fact, I think I've done it this past week. In fact, I know I've done it this past week. All of us are guilty of this from time to time. And what Jesus makes clear in this passage is that this sort of attitude, this sort of behavior, is much more serious, with much more serious consequences than we would ever imagine. The first reason why this is so serious, Jesus says, is because he makes it clear that if we treat other people this way in life, that God will treat us the same way at the end of time. That if we develop this overly critical, censorious, judgmental sort of attitude towards other people in this life, we will find at the end of time that God treats us the same way. That's what we see both at the end of verse 1 when Jesus says, or you too will be judged, but it's also what we see in verse 2 when Jesus says this. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. For in the same way you judge others, for in the same way you are hypercritical towards other people, you will be judged, and 
And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And you see Jesus here uses this image of measuring. And this image of measuring was actually, actually taken from the business world at the time. It was taken from the world of commerce. In the first century in the Roman Empire, when they would do transactions, they would often measure things out with literal scales. They would use literal scales. Well, what some people were known to do is some people would rig the scales. They would either use false weights or they would rig the mechanism that balanced things out in order to work in their favor so that they would benefit from it. Well, what began to happen over time in order to combat this is it would be agreed upon before you entered into a transaction that the same scale would be used for both the buyer and the seller. Therefore, if the scale was rigged, it would be rigged in both directions and the idea would be that it would even out. Well, what Jesus is saying here is if we go through this life with this hypercritical, judgmental sort of attitude, this, this fault-finding mission to point out every error and every sin and every mistake that someone else has made, what we will find is the same scale we use for other people in this life, God will use for us at the end of time. And by the way, this is something we consistently find throughout Scripture. Consistently in Scripture, we find that our God is a God who loves to give us grace unless we refuse to have grace for other people. And if we refuse to have grace for other people, at the end of time, God will look at us and say something like, well, you didn't have grace for anybody else in your life. Why should I have grace for you? And trust me, we all want God to have grace for us, right? Because we all have our stuff. We all have our struggles. We all have our sins. And that's exactly what Jesus makes clear in verses 3 and 4 when he gives us this famous image of the plank and the speck. Look with me there. Jesus says, verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? And what Jesus is doing here in verses 3 and 4 is he's using this very deliberately exaggerated image in order to get his point across. He's saying, I want you to imagine that there's someone who's walking around with a plank in their eye. I had our facilities department help me out with this this past week, and they got me this two-by-four right here. And look, at this is a pretty good-sized two-by-four, right? It's a pretty big two-by-four. But understand the plank that Jesus is talking about here is much bigger than this. The Greek word translated plank here is the Greek word dokos, D-O-K-O-S. And a dokos in the first century referred to the support beam of a house. So think of all those HGTV shows you've watched, and whenever they want to tear down a wall, what's the question they ask? Is this a load-bearing wall, right? And it's always a load-bearing wall. Apparently every wall in our house is a load-bearing wall. And so whenever they tear down the wall, what do they have to do? They have to put this really large support beam up to keep the house up. Well, that's, I know it's really sad when that happens, isn't it? Well, that's what a dacos is. It was a really big support beam. They were huge. They were often 40 feet long. They were five feet around. So they were much bigger than this. But even this illustrates the point well. What Jesus is saying in this passage, he's saying, I want you to imagine that someone's walking around with this just sticking out of their eye. And as they're walking around with this sticking out of their eye, they come up to you and they say, uh, excuse me, sir, could, could you come a little bit closer here? Just, just come a little bit closer. Yep, I thought so. I can see it right there in the corner of your eye. You have a little speck of sawdust. Do you see that there? You must have been working in the wood shop, huh? Man, that's embarrassing. Here, I'll tell you what. Come a little bit closer and I'll take that out for you, okay? Yeah, just come a little bit closer. No, don't worry about this. Just come a little bit closer and I'll take that out for you. Okay, it won't hurt. Just hurt a little bit, okay? Uh, there you go. I mean, if someone did that to you, right, what would be your reaction? You would think that's ridiculous. You would think that's absurd. That, that's laughable. 
And that's the point that Jesus is making here. The point that Jesus is making here is that we all have our stuff. We all have our struggles. We all have our sin. And contrary to what we might think, we are often harder on other people than we are on ourselves. We often have more grace for ourselves than we have for other people. Now, I know we don't think that. I know we often say, well, I'm hardest on myself. But you know what? When it comes to sin, that's often not true. And the reason why is because we excuse our sin, because we know why we do the things that we do. We know why we sinned. We know why we made that decision. We know what struggles we have in our past that has caused us to act that way. We know that, and so we tend to excuse it in our own life. But we don't know why someone else did what they did, and so we don't excuse it in their life as readily. Not only that, but the other point that Jesus is making by this is he's making the point that we often will notice other people's sin, but we'll ignore our own sin. We see other people's sin, but we don't see our own sin. It's really easy for us to point out the obvious sin of adultery in someone's life, but it's a lot harder for us to recognize the number of impure thoughts that we have entertained over the, time, over the years. It's really easy for us to, 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 to see someone else and, and see how rich they are and accuse them of greed, but it's hard for us to see our own greed and our own selfishness. And it's really easy for us to point out the addictions that other people have that we don't struggle with, like addictions to alcohol and drugs. But it's a lot harder for us to see our own addiction to the internet, to television, to food. It's much easier for us to see someone else's sin than it is our own sin. And Jesus says that if we go around with this attitude, where we are intent on pointing out all the mistakes that people have made, all the sins that people have committed, all the errors that people have done, then we will find at the end of time God will treat us in the same way that we treat other people. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we can never point out when someone is doing something wrong? Does that mean that we have to turn a blind eye to sin? No, not at all. In fact, Jesus says in this passage, there does come a point where we can address the speck in someone else's eye. We can address the sin in someone else's life. But that only happens after we have examined ourselves, after we have been critical of ourselves first. And if after we examine ourselves, we realize, oh, I have this huge plank in my eye. I do have this huge sin that I'm struggling with. We have to do the hard work of removing our own sin before we deal with someone else's sin. And that's what Jesus says here in verse 5. He says, you hypocrite. He says, first take the plank out of your own eye. First deal with your own sin. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Then you'll be able to see the sin in someone else's life. And what I find is that if you do the hard work to remove the sin of envy and greed and lust and so on in your own life, you are a lot more compassionate. You are a lot more empathetic when you are dealing with the sin in someone else's life. And I wonder if that's part of what Jesus is getting across here. So the first reason why this attitude is so dangerous is because Jesus says if we treat other people this way in this life, God will treat us the same way at the end of time. But there's another reason why this attitude is so dangerous as well. As I said, one of the things that Jesus came to do in this life is to give us a picture of what authentic Christian community looks like. And there are few attitudes and there are few behaviors that are more dangerous to relationships than this attitude right here. Because look, how in the world can you exist in a relationship with someone if you're always so intent in just pointing out their faults? How can you start a relationship with someone if you've decided even before you've gotten to know them that you don't like them? And how can you get anything meaningful out of a relationship with someone 
if the only reason that you're in it is to put them down to make yourself feel better. You just can't. And what I wonder is maybe one of the reasons why some of us struggle with loneliness in this place is because either A, we do this to other people, we have, we have written off other people before we even get to know them. Or we have become so critical, so negative that people don't want to be around us. That also happens. Or B, because we've had this done to us. And other people have judged us before getting to know us. And that's why you see why no matter what, this is just not an attitude that God's church can have. And if we want to develop the community that God wants us to develop collectively, we have to recognize our tendency to do this, and we have to overcome it. We have to seek to believe the best about our brothers and sisters in Christ. A couple of months ago, I went to an event where uh, the keynote speaker of this event was Dr. Barry Corey. He's the president of Biola University. He actually spoken here before. And at this event, Dr. Corey told a story that is right along the lines of what I'm talking about here today. Uh, some of you remember last year there was a bill making its way through the California State Legislature. It was called SB 1146. And what SB 1146 would have done if it had passed as it was originally written is it would have stripped religious universities of the protections that they have when it comes to dealing with students who, don't, who live lifestyles that these universities don't agree with. So I'm thinking specifically about Christian universities dealing with students who identify as a part of the LGBT community. And so as you can imagine, this was a very heated conversation and discussion, and Biola was right at the center of it. And so right when the rhetoric was at its absolute worst, Dr. Corey did something interesting. He scheduled a meeting with one of the key assembly members in the California State Legislature, who is one of the key supporters of this particular bill. And as Dr. Corey tells the story, he, he, he went up to this office where uh, this, this legislator was. His name uh, was Evan Lowe. And when he got into Evan Lowe's office, before he even met Evan, when he was just sitting in the waiting room, he said that he, he sensed hostility from Evan's staff. And he later learned out that, that he was right in sensing that. You see, Evan himself identifies as a part of the LGBT community, and Evan's staff actually encouraged Evan not to take this meeting because they didn't want Evan to meet with what in their mind was a bigoted, judgmental Christian. But Evan, to his credit, didn't listen to them and took the meeting with Dr. Corey. And so they had this meeting together, and this meeting spilled into a lunch. And that lunch created additional meetings and additional meals. Dr. Corey has been to Evan's office now several times. And Evan has been down to Biola. And he has met with some of the staff and some of the professors and some of the students. And in March of this past year, they actually jointly wrote an article for the Washington Post. And the article was entitled, We First Battled Over LGBT and Religious Rights. Here's How We Became Unlikely Friends, with an emphasis on the word friends. Let me read to you just a portion from this article. We'll also have it on the screen. This is what they write. They say, We both had notions that informed our initially defensive stances towards the other. It's amazing how quickly biases can be overcome when real relationships are prioritized, when you realize the person you once thought an adversary is in many ways like you with a story and passions and fears and a hope that we can make the world a better place. Do we agree on everything? No. Do our ideas of how to make the world a better place align, not on every issue? That's okay. 
But what we have discovered in getting to know one another is that, and I love this line, is that two people do not need to see eye to eye in order to work shoulder to shoulder. Two people do not need to see eye to eye in order to work shoulder to shoulder. And to listen to Dr. Corey speak, I mean, it is clear he really genuinely considers Evan a friend. Like, he has gotten something very meaningful out of this relationship. Now, Evan is not a Christian. And this past week, I was thinking, if Dr. Corey is able to benefit so much but by dropping some of his preconceived notions and his tendency to judge and, and to exist in a relationship with someone who believes wildly different than him, then how much more so would we be able to benefit if we dropped some of our preconceived notions and tendency to judge? And sought out relationships with our own fellow Christians. With people who have the same goal that we do. To know Christ and to make him known. How much more would we be able to benefit if we did that? Some of you know the answer to that question. Because some of you in this church I know have experienced that. Six weeks ago I went to a graduation of one of our ministries here on campus. It's called our No Regrets Ministry. You've heard us talk about that before. No Regrets is, our, is part of our men's ministry. And basically what happens in the No Regrets Ministry, it's, it's kind of like a small group ministry. For nine months, men meet here on campus from 7 to 9 p.m. on a Thursday night. They sit around round tables and they go through this curriculum. But basically this curriculum just gets these men talking about life and it gets them talking about God. And at the end of nine months, this program is up, and so they have a little graduation for them. So Matthew and myself and some other pastors, we attended it. And there was a part of this graduation where the men got to get up, and they got to share what this experience was like for them. And more than once, I heard someone say something like this. You know, you guys, I, I initially didn't really want to go. I only came because my wife wanted me to go, or I felt guilted into doing it, or something like that. In fact, one guy said, I had a plan. I was going to show up for two sessions, and then I was going to never show up again. But all these men obviously decided to stick with it. And over and over and over again, I heard the following. I heard, listen, guys, I have grown more in nine months sitting around the table with you than I have learned in five years sitting in church on a regular basis. I have grown more in my faith in nine months with you guys than I have grown in five years sitting in the seats week after week in church. And those of you who have been through Rooted, and those of you who have been through our, our women's Bible studies, and those of you who have been in other committed life groups and mob groups and that sort of thing, probably all of you would be able to say something similar. That you grew more in a few months in that place than you grew in twice as long, in three times as long, coming here to church on Sunday. And what I want you to know, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, is I'm not offended by that, okay? I'm not offended by that because I could be. Listen, if you want to encourage your pastor, don't tell him, hey, pastor, just so you know, I learned more in nine months from those guys over there than I learned in five years sitting on your teaching, right? It has the potential to not make me all warm and fuzzy inside, but I'm not offended by it. I get it because that's exactly what the Bible says happens. The Bible says that we grow best. We learn the best in relationship, in community with other Christians. There's been this phrase in Ephesians that has always stood out to me. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is praying this incredible prayer over the church in Ephesus. And basically what he's praying is he's saying, church in Ephesus, I want you to grow in your faith. And the way I want you to grow in your faith, uh, Paul says, is I want you to grow in your faith by knowing the love of Jesus more. 
And in the midst of this, he says something interesting. Let me pick it up in the middle of verse 17. This is what he says. We'll put it on the screen. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, and here's the key phrase, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And what Paul is saying there by that phrase, together with all the Lord's holy people, is he's saying it's only when we are in relationship with other Christians that we begin to understand how vast and how amazing the love of Jesus is. Because listen, I know the love of Christ, but I only have one perspective on the love of Christ. The perspective I have is the way that Jesus has shown love to me. But you, you have a different story than I do. And so you have a different perspective on the love of Christ. And that is the way that Christ has shown love to you. And someone in our Migos congregation and someone in our Orange campus, they have a different story. So they have a different perspective on the love of Christ. It's the way that Jesus has shown love to them. And what happens when we get together in community, when we get to share one another, is we each bring our perspective. And it's like we each bring a piece of the puzzle. And we put our piece in the puzzle and then we take a step back and we go, wow. How vast is the love of Jesus? How long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ? That can only happen in community. It can't happen by yourself. It can't even happen if you spend all day reading the Bible and praying if you're doing it by yourself. It can only happen when we're in relationship with other people. And that is the reason why Jesus has given us the church. And so in light of that, here's my big so what out of this message. And it is nothing profound, but it's important. Two things. First thing is this. We all need to recognize our tendency to do what Jesus warns against in Matthew 7. We all need to recognize our tendency to criticize, and to go on fault-finding missions, and, and to write off people even before we get to know them, because that destroys community. And if I can say something, especially to my generation and younger, I think we can be especially guilty of this. And I think we can be especially guilty of this when it comes to older brothers and sisters in the faith. I think sometimes in my generation, we have a cynicism That says, you know, you older Christians, you don't really get it. We're the only ones who get it. And there is no other word for that than arrogance. And that is an arrogance that is keeping us out of relationship with older brothers and sisters in Christ who have so much wisdom to share with us. So we all need to recognize our tendency to do this. And we need to overcome it. And then second, we just need to step out. And we need to step out and we need to seek community and relationship with other Christians. And at this church, we have something to help you in that. A year and a half ago, we started this incredible ministry here. It's called Rooted. And it's a 10-week small group experience. You've heard us talk about it a lot. But the reason we talk about it so much is, at least in my opinion, is it is, in the five years that I've been here, it is the greatest thing that I think our church has done. And the reason why is because there is so much growth and transformation happening through Rooted, and there is so much community being developed. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, Chris, I've been attending this church for years. It wasn't until Rooted when it began to feel like home, when it began to feel like family. 
And so in a couple of months, we're going to start another round of Rooted, which in the grand scheme of things is not very long at all. And so if you are interested, if you want to register your interest, at the back of this worship center, we have a table uh, that, for Rooted. And you can go to the back at the end of the service, and you can put your name down, and we will follow up with you. If you can't make it down there, when you came in, you got this connection card, as Jen talked about earlier. And in the bottom right of this connection card, it says, I'm ready to take the next step and, and you may need a magnifying glass to see this, but it says, to experience community in a rooted group. That's the second thing. And we, if you check that box, we will have ushers at the exit, and they will collect these cards, and we will follow up with you this week, I promise. Now listen, rooted is just a tool. It's a tool to get you in relationship with other Christians. If you can do that some other way, great, do that. But this is the best tool that we have. And for all of us, all of us, you know, I think this might be the week where we need to reexamine some of the relationships in our life. Some of the relationships we have written off. I'm talking about relationships at work, relationships in our neighborhood, relationships in our school, relationships with parents of, of, of some of our children's friends. And maybe give these people a second chance. Who knows what may come out of it. But as Jesus says here, we can't judge or we too will be judged. Let me close with this. As I was uh, working on this sermon this past week, uh, there was one point where, where I stopped in the middle of, of all my prep, and um, I just offered up a prayer. And what I did is, is I prayed for our church. You know, one of the things that's happening right now is that the church is getting a lot of attack from the outside, right? A lot of people from the outside are, are beating us up, and they're calling us bigoted and judgmental and so on. And because we're getting so much attack from the outside, this is just not a season for us to attack one another. It's just not. And, and listen, I don't think we do. I think we're really good at a lot of what I'm talking about today. But I know what Satan would love to do. Satan would love to get us to beat each other up. And this is just not a season where we should be doing that. We should never do that, but especially in this time. And so I prayed three things for, for our church during that prayer. The first thing that I prayed is I prayed that we would be a community of both grace and truth. And that we would never get one of these two things out of balance. The second thing that I prayed is I prayed that the, the world would know us in the same way that Jesus said the world were, were, were to know his disciples. And that was by the love that they had for one another. And then the third thing I prayed for is I prayed for protection. I prayed that God would never allow uh, Satan to do to this church what he's done to it in the past. I prayed that God would protect us. And as I finished that prayer, I, I, I thought to myself, you know what, I don't want that to be a private prayer. I, I want to pray that over all of us this weekend. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do. So would you do me a favor right now? Would, would you stand with me? And this next thing that I ask, I, I do not ask it to embarrass you, but, but if you are able... Um, would you grab the hand of the person standing next to you? And even, if you can, across the aisles. And as I close here, would you just bow your heads with me as I pray this prayer over our church? Father God, you know that deep in my heart, Lord, I, I believe that the church is the greatest organization that this world has ever seen. Because it was established by you, God. 
And Father, when we are at our best, Lord, when we are at our best, God, we are, we are a force to be reckoned with. And God, the enemy knows that. And that's why the enemy tries to do whatever he can to tear us apart, Lord. And uh, God, we just don't want him to do that. And so, Father, the first thing I pray for our community, Lord, is I pray that we would be a community of both grace and truth, God. And, Father, I pray that we would have both of those in exactly the right amounts, Lord. And, and I know a, a large part of that is, is, is based on what we say here on stage, what Matthew, myself, David, Aaron, Jay, anybody else who speaks here says, God. And so, Father, would you give us the, the, the right balance between grace and truth, and would we always exhibit that in what we say? Father, I pray that we would be a community of love, Lord. I pray that the primary face we would show to the world around us is not that we fight, not that we criticize, not that we judge, but that we love one another. And the world would, would look at that and say, what is it about you guys? You, you seem to really like each other. You seem to really love each other. And that would give us an opportunity to point back to our Savior. And Father, the third thing I pray for is I pray for protection, God. I pray as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, or the church in Corinth, God, that we would not be ignorant of the schemes of the enemy, of the way that he wants to divide, God, the way that he wants to split, Lord. Uh, perhaps in the past that has happened, Father, but, but we pray that that would never happen again, God, that we would be aware of that. And Father, I pray that this would be a place of so much truth, of so much love, so filled with your Holy Spirit, God, that Satan would not want to be anywhere near it because he hates the light. And this would be just a place of incredible light, God. Father, I thank you for the ways that you have had your hand on this community for 100 plus years, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would always fill these seats, you would always fill the stage, you would always fill the offices here with nothing but people who are, who are dedicated to following you, to, to knowing you and making you known and changing the world for the sake of your kingdom, God. So, Father, we thank you for this community, God. And I pray for anybody who is here who does not feel as though this place is lone, who, at home, who feels lonely, God, that you would help them get plugged into a community quick, Father, and they would begin to feel as though this is the family that you have created the church to be, God. And they would be just an integral part of this body. And so, Father, we, we love you. We thank you so much for the ways that you have watched over us and the ways that you will continue to watch over us, God. And Father, we pray that each and every one of us would live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Father, we love you. We thank you. And collectively, we ask all of this in your son's name. And everyone said, amen.